I'm Ted Burnham. And I'm Jane Palmer. This is How on Earth, the show that makes you smarter. Today is Tuesday, May 6, 2014. Coming up, we'll speak with author John C. Havens about how to take control of all the data we generate online and how to use our quantified selves to hack our own happiness. We begin with a look at some of the recent news in science. Did I really sign up to read the science headline? I thought I said no, but I was told I said yes. I'm not convinced. A recent study has found that people can easily be fooled into believing that they said something that they didn't. Traditional theory is that people plan in advance before they talk, and that's how they know what they're going to say. But new findings suggest that we only really know what we say by actually hearing ourselves speak the words. The researchers tested what would happen if people said one word, such as red, but heard themselves saying an entirely different word, such as blue, through headphones. Two-thirds of the time, these words to which this happened, speakers didn't detect them, and 85% of the speakers were convinced they said the incorrect feedback word. The scientists believe this is because speakers listen to their own voices to help specify the meaning of what they're saying which is a little scary on live radio, because by the time you've figured out what you didn't mean to say, all the listeners have already heard what you actually did say. The results were published last week in the journal Psychological Science. In the book and movie The Andromeda Strain, a satellite comes back to Earth infected with a deadly microbe from outer space. Space scientists call this back contamination, but they're also concerned about the opposite scenario, forward contamination, where microorganisms from Earth could tag along on one of our spacecraft and infect other planets. That might trick us into thinking we'd found extraterrestrial life, when in fact it was just stowaway microbes from Earth. And in a reverse of the Andromeda strain scenario, those Earth bugs could be fatal to any real extraterrestrials we might find. The principle of preventing that kind of cross-contamination is called planetary protection. At the International Space Station, three scientific studies examined the risks of an interplanetary exchange of microorganisms. Two of the experiments tested the survival of spore-forming bacteria. Spores are suited to space travel because they can withstand sterilization and may be able to survive the harsh environments of outer space or planetary surfaces. In one experiment, spores of Bacillus pumilus were exposed to a simulated Mars environment that kills other types of spores in 30 seconds flat. Bacillus pumilus survived for 30 minutes. Another experiment put spores into the actual space environment using the European Technology Exposure Facility, which is mounted outside the space station. The spores lived at least one and a half years, despite the vacuum, extreme temperature fluctuations, and intense solar and cosmic radiation. Although ultraviolet radiation eventually killed most of the spores, in a real-life contamination scenario, the spores might find a sheltered part of the spacecraft to hide in and survive even longer. The third study found that other cellular organisms, which like to grow on rocks, could also last more than 18 months in space. One possibility for natural cross-infection between planets is where a meteor slams into one planet, ejecting rocks carrying organisms on their surface, and those rocks eventually land on another planet. The research suggests it's entirely possible that some bugs could survive the trip 
and find themselves with a whole new world to colonize. Those papers appeared in the journal Astrobiology. You're tuned to How on Earth, the KGNU Science Show. I'm Jane Palmer. You drive to Starbucks with your cell phone in your pocket, go online, read your favourite newspaper, share an interesting book review on Facebook, and then go and order the bestseller from Amazon. It's only 9am, but you've already left a data trail, a big one, on your whereabouts, your taste, your friends, and your financial habits. In his new book, Hacking Happiness, Why Your Personal Data Counts and How Tracking It Can Change the World, John C. Havens talks about how megacorporations hoard these details and use them for their own monetary gain. But Havens argues it doesn't have to be like that. Using emerging technologies, we can reclaim control over our information and use it not to boost company sales, but to improve our own happiness. Havens starts this journey by introducing the reader to their quantified self, their own digital identity, made up of gigabytes of data collected from smartphone apps, sensors, and interactions on the internet. Using technology to get to know our physical, psychological, and social selves is just the first step in being able to engineer our own well-being, he says. Inspired by the field of positive psychology, Haven believes that we can use our digital devices to create a more connected world and perform acts of service. Collectively, this means, as a society, we can move towards greater happiness. Welcome to the show, John. Hey, Jane. Thanks for having me. Thank you. John, you cover an awful lot of ground in your book, from megacorporations hijacking our data to questioning the GDP as a measure of wealth. How did you get started on this journey? Yeah, <laughs> it's not necessarily a beach read, although I, I encourage people to do that if they'd like. Um, I got started on it mainly because of my dad. My dad was a psychiatrist for about 40 years, and we calculated at one point that he would have sat across patients and, and helped patients for about 50,000 hours in his lifetime. And really what he helped people do without any technology was feel that their lives counted in the sense that they got to talk about their lives and they, they took a measure of their lives. And so when he uh, died about three years ago, um, part of my grief was really realizing how much I wanted to continue his work. So he's really the, the impetus and the inspiration for my work. So you're the updated version, the technological version. And um, so is that why you say the hacking in Hacking Happiness? Can you just explain that a little? Sure, and thanks for asking. It's not hacking as in like the nefarious sort of, you know, hidden hacking. When I say hacking, I mean the sort of fun, positive geek use of the word, which means it's a playful rethinking or innovating around an older idea. And in this sense, in the book, happiness, instead of it just being a mood, which is great, but it's ephemeral and can be somewhat passing, and people call it hedonic happiness in positive psychology, which means that it's natural that it fluctuates. There's ways to sort of hack this idea that happiness just has to be about mood, and when you can build what's called your intrinsic well-being, it's sort of like exercising muscles, and you can increase those over time, and it doesn't necessarily have to be based about your mood. 
Oh, right. So that's a clear distinction to make, isn't it, really? That we're not talking about the, hey, I'm feeling happy this morning and then I'm feeling sad two minutes later. It's a general, would you call it intrinsic well-being? Yes. Um, and, and it's, you know, understandably mood is very tied to that. It doesn't mean that mood goes away or it's not important. But in positive psychology, this word, um, or phrase rather, they call it uh, the hedonic treadmill. And hedonic is the word like hedonism, that's the base word. And the hedonic treadmill, we all deal with it. <clears throat> and what that means is you get a raise, so you're totally stoked. I got a raise! <laughs> and then your buddy gets a raise two days later, and he lets slip the amount, and it's more than your raise, so your happiness goes boo and plummets. <laughs> and that sort of up and down, which is completely natural, that's called hedonic happiness. And if we try to base kind of our overarching lives on that, then we're really at risk at always being uh, subject to our moods versus intrinsic happiness involves things like doing work that gives you purpose or increases what's called your flow, where you don't necessarily have to be happy from a mood standpoint, but it's work you feel like you're built to do, or also when you're altruistic, like you touched on in your introduction, when you're helping others, or when you're expressing gratitude. These are all different actions that you can take, and I'm very action-focused, where even if your mood doesn't improve, although with these things a lot of times it does, what you can do is, uh, over uh, time, increase that intrinsic well-being. Again, the metaphor of going to the gym is very similar. It's not always a great, fun thing at 5.30 in the morning to be like, I'm going to the gym. You know, you're not going to be in a happy mood, but usually once you're there, and certainly after a couple of weeks of getting back into that rhythm, you feel that real satisfaction, both physical and, and mental and emotional, of, of getting that physical uh, health going. So this is the same idea, but with your well-being. Right. Okay, I get that. So you actually start off talking about an, an unhappy topic, really, and that's how our, we're giving away our data for free, and it's being used by mega corporations. And I'm guessing you're just pointing out that we're enslaved, so you know, we can loosen the bonds and move towards greater happiness. But can you give me an example of how we do that on a day-to-day basis or in a way that we hadn't really thought of before? Sure. I think <clears throat> what most of us don't think about, except, you know, you and me were science-focused or technology-passionate you know, about this, is we sort of grew up, as it were, in the last 10 years in an Internet economy where everyone kind of knows this idea now, we're the product, right? When our eyeballs go to a website page, when we take our mobile phone and walk around the world with GPS where we go, and now even with sensors uh, with what's called the Internet of Things, meaning surveillance cameras or what have you, everywhere we go, our unique identity <coughs> excuse me, can be tracked. And it's not necessarily just for nefarious purposes or for surveillance like the NSA. A lot of it, in fact, the majority of it is based on marketing. You know, where are we going? What are we buying? Who are we talking to? What's our intent? And a lot of what I want to point out in the book or tried to point out in the book is understanding how your personal data is tracked and sold right now is a complete allegory or metaphor uh, in the sense of it's just invisible. The world right now largely is invisible. We're sort of used to it. We have this ennui about going to a site and they want our information. It's a 14-page terms and conditions. We sign it and we give that data away. So what people don't think about and why this relates to happiness and well-being 
is that when you give away your data, say, to one website once, you're just thinking of it as a one-time transaction, like when you hand a dollar bill to someone at a store and it's done. That's not the case. That copy can be replicated and sold for eternity. And each of those little pieces of data can be accessed by a data broker and put into, say, some kind of list, where then that aspect of your identity is now on sale for someone else. So, for instance, 60 Minutes did a thing on data brokers a couple weeks ago, and they talked about this one company, I think it's in Connecticut, that has lists of things like people who have um, certain types of prescriptions. So you can find out just, you can get a list of names just of people who buy, say, uh, prescriptions for um, a certain type of dementia. So think about how that now affects today, not in the future, right now today, how that affects, uh, say, for instance, a hiring practice. Would a hiring manager want to buy one of those lists and know, for instance, that they wouldn't want to hire someone with dementia? That's one example. And it's one tiny piece of data that's aggregated. So a lot of what I talk about in the book is this uh, new whole industry of what's called personal data banks or personal data clouds. And what that allows an individual to do is in the same way that when you put files, say, into Dropbox or the Amazon cloud, those files are protected and can only be accessed by you, or in those cases, Amazon and Dropbox ostensibly. But personal clouds allow you to take all of your data, almost to have an invisible shield around your whole body, as it were, online, mobile, and in the future, in the augmented or virtual world. So that if someone wants to access that data, they have to come to you. It reverses the whole model. I think the reason I spent so much time talking about it in the book, that whole process has to happen. It's going to take a few years. But in a lot of ways, I don't think we can manage our own happiness or identity if other people are accessing it and selling it and broadcasting who we are to other people and selling it without even our knowledge, let alone our consent. Oh, you've totally convinced me. I mean, um, I didn't really see any real concern until you put it like that, but um, sign me up, you know. <laughs> um, you are listening to How on Earth, the KGNU Science Show. I'm Jane Palmer, and we're talking with John C. Havens, author of the book Hacking Happiness, While Your Personal Data Counts and How Tracking It Can Change the World. Um, you also talk about using technology to keep track of our own behavior and health. I've tracked ski runs, where I've gone, have I gone through the trees, have I gone down the woozy slopes, on my cycling pace, using GPS on my phone. But, I mean, how, can you give me some examples of ways that could do that, could really contribute to our happiness? Sure, there's an app I talk about in the book, and uh, I did a TEDx talk, and I, I love this app. It's called Cardio, and it's spelled C-A-R-D-I-I-O. And Cardio lets you, it's an iPhone app, you can point it at your face. So it can be about a foot and a half away. You're holding your phone up to your face with the screen facing towards you. And you press a button, and it can measure your resting heart rate without actually having to touch your skin. So it's not using, like, the, the pulse in your thumb or what have you. Right. What it's doing is measuring the amount of light that's in your face, and it doesn't matter what color your skin is. And the logic is that when we flush or when our heart beats, <clears throat> there's an imperceptible to the human eye variation in skin color um, or tone. And so what I find fascinating about this app is it's passive data collection, and that means we don't have to sit there and press a button, you know, wondering what's my pulse. It does it automatically. And secondly, it does biometric readings without you having to touch yourself. So once data is protected, a lot of things I'm going to say may sound geeky 
or depending on the, the individual, somewhat creepy. But remember that when the data is protected, then all of these different examples I can give should be done in a sense of a peer-to-peer sort of structure. So here's what I mean. Say you and I, 10 years from now, are having a conversation. We're both wearing augmented reality contact lenses, which basically means we're wearing essentially a little mini computer over our eyes, or it's like Google Glass, but much more advanced. So what that means is while we're having a conversation, I could be measuring your face through facial uh, uh, recognition technology, things like eye-tracking technology, where when your pupils dilate, it's a correlation for positive emotion. So all this technology could be happening, and then this cardio app um, could also know, like, when your heart rate goes up and down. So, for instance, someday my kids, who are 11 and 8, they may be on dates using these types of technologies. We will actually know, is this woman or this man's heart racing in one sense? because they're excited to be with me, or did they like my last joke, right? And even though it's kind of freaky to think about, um, the technology is already here, A. And B, again, if that data is something where there's a, a framework, and I can tell you more about that, of how that type of date would happen, where both those people know beforehand the possibilities of how this tech might work, then there's implied consent in all these examples that I give. Okay. So that is kind of actually, at this day and age, quite scary without seeing it play out that, you know, I mean, dating's faulty enough as it is, but to go out and think, oh, he's bored out of his brains. And, you know, and that brings me to, you know, you talk about tracking emotions. Can we really track emotions? I think the short answer is yes. You know, when you, when you use the word track, it depends on what you mean. You know, is it quantify? Right, I use the word quantify emotions. So right now in real life, meaning we're just walking around without any technology, you make a joke, someone laughs. Does it mean that they like you? You know, that's a bigger question. Does it mean you said something that made them laugh? You know, very simply, yes, they didn't laugh. They weren't laughing. You said something, they laughed. So are you quantifying an emotion when you as a person say, I just made that person laugh? That, I'll leave there for a second because scientifically, can you repeat that and all that? <clears throat> when you have something, for instance, like a, a watch, these, there's now all these different quantified self or wearable technologies, and they call them a watch. It just means it's something you wear on your wrist. There's a lot of these new watches now that can measure stress uh, by correlating the amount of sweat that's on your skin. So if you give a speech, for instance, and that makes you really nervous, you can almost instantly or instantly watch a, a data collection, a, um, a, um, a graph on your screen, a visualization of your stress going up or down. You know, if you're on a beach, maybe it goes down. So, for instance, that's one piece of data that's your physiological, your body, giving a sense of an emotion or at least a state. Stress might be more of a state. So then you can take another app, there's a great free app you can try. It's really fun called Moody's, M-O-O-D-I-E-S. Moody's, you record yourself for 20 seconds, and it tells you by the timbre of your voice, the actual inflection of your voice, doesn't make a difference what language even, what your emotions are at that time. Now, do you always agree with the technology? No. Is the technology, are there faults to it? Sure. But my point is, is that now you just have two data points. You're a little bit stressed, and here's this emotional analysis. Anyway, by the time you get, say, even two, let alone four or five or six data points, now it's really more of a philosophical discussion to say, well, by the time these different technologies, in one sense, read all these different uh, data about me, in one sense, they may know how you're feeling more than you do, 
right? A lot of times we forget that as people, we're fallible, and I've made, you know, horrible dating choices as, as far as you know, probably a lot of your listeners have as well. Or we've done jobs that we think we're going to like, but we don't know. So, again, as long as personal data is protected and all that, I think a lot of these technologies, what they're going to do is uh, create ways for people with uh, these technologies so they don't have to worry about being sort of condemned by others. They can use this tech to oh. analyze aspects of their emotion that they didn't even know. Wow. So, yeah, that is interesting because being English, of course, I don't have emotions or I'm certainly not aware of them. So in the final minute, um, you know, if you could just tell us very quickly, because you launched the Hapathon Project, what can people do if they log on to the Hapathon Project? Sure, that's H-A-P-P-A-T-H-O-N. And what we're doing, uh, we have workshops we've done around the world for the past year in places like Dubai and Lisbon, uh, Bhutan even. Uh, we're trying to help people understand what these metrics, like gross national happiness metrics, mean that you can measure besides just worth or money or financial aspects, what can bring well-being to individuals and country-level uh, stuff. And then also we have a values survey you can do for free. And a lot of times people don't even know their values. And if you don't live to your values, there's a ton of science showing your happiness decreases. So we're right. trying to get people to take action to, to increase their well-being. And in your book, it became very obvious your, one of your values was service. But outside of your work... You know, how do you like to relax? How do you like to get flow in your life? Uh, I do play music. Um, as you know, I play blues harmonica and guitar. I just played yesterday. I played a gig for Cinco de Mayo. Oh, so can you play us a tune, a happy tune? And first of all, I want to say thank you for being on the show. Well, my pleasure. And my website, by the way, is also johnchavens.com if that's helpful to your listeners. But thanks for having me. Thanks so much, John. Bye. Okay. That's fabulous. That's put me in a good mood for a day and made me very happy. That was John C. Havens, author of the book Hacking Happiness, Why Your Personal Data Counts and How Tracking It Can Change the World. That's all for this edition of How on Earth. This week's show was co-produced by my co-host Jane Palmer and Beth Bartell. Our executive producer is Joel Parker. Our theme music was written and produced by Josh Cutler. Additional music from Yon C. And of course, we had some additional music from our guest, John C. Havens, right at the end there. You can visit our website at howonearthradio.org to find past episodes and extended interviews, subscribe to our podcast through iTunes, and follow us on Facebook and Twitter. Questions or comments? Call the KGNU comment line at 303-447-9911. For How on Earth, the KGNU show, Science Show, I'm Jane Palmer. And I'm Ted Burnham.